Chances are you're exhausted. The past two years have hit us all, straining relationships with friends, family, and church. The Edible Theology Project believes the rest and connection you need right now will take place at the table. Maybe you're an individual who wants to host a few friends for a simple dinner, a small group leader looking for a curriculum, or a pastor desperate for a tool to encourage your weary congregants. Enter the Worship at the Table curriculum for everyone from four roommates to thousands of church members. This six-lesson curriculum for Sunday schools, small groups, and groups of friends examines the stories God tells through food while offering practical ways to use the table as a place of community building, spiritual formation, and healing. Worship at the Table will be available this fall, but Edible Theology is offering you the chance to reserve a discounted copy now through their Indiegogo campaign. You don't want to miss this chance to get in early. You won't find prices like these again. Learn more at igg.me slash at slash edible theology. Again, that's igg.me slash at slash edible theology. Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast. Conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chamberlain. Hey everyone, this is Derek, welcoming you back to the Food and Faith Podcast. We had a little unintentional hiatus there in May because of COVID, but we're back through June. We'll have five episodes this month before we take our summer break. And I'm excited for this interview that you're going to hear today because it's with my friend Andrew Brummy. Andrew is an American filmmaker based in France. He is directing a documentary film series called Taste and See, exploring the spirituality of food with farmers, chefs, butchers, winemakers, and more, who are engaging with food is a profound gift from God. He previously produced the feature documentary In Pursuit of Silence, a meditative and experiential film about silence, sound, and the impact of noise on our lives, which premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Andrew is doing a unique release for the first part of his documentary series, Taste and See, and you'll hear a little bit about ways that you can see that first part uh, during the interview, and there'll be notes for you to be able to schedule your own screening of the first part of the series, which is a beautiful, beautiful documentary film. Uh, but for now, just uh, sit back and listen to my interview with Andrew Brummy. All right, we are here with Andrew Brummy. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, this is a gift. Thank you, Derek. So we start all of our conversations with this question of what is your geography? What are the places, the culture, the foods, the music, the things that have shaped you into the person that you are? You know, as a fan of your podcast, Derek, I've known this question was coming and it's been terribly <laughs> stressful. And I've thought, how do you summarize oneself, you know, in a few sentences? And some people seem to go on too long in their answers and some are too quick and some deal with geography, some don't. So I, uh, I have thought too much about this question, but I will, I will say a few tidbits geography wise for me. I grew up in the U.S. in the Southwest, Arizona and California. Um, but really, I think the geography part of my life seems to kick in when I uh, met my eventual wife um, overseas at a conference internationally. And that led to me moving to France, where I live now, um, which is where she grew up. Uh, and that it, it that's a big part of my geography now. So I'm this American living in France and um, 
the last film that I made actually uh, that I produced was about silence and sound. And a big part of that was exploring what is it, you know, acoustic silence, but inner silence, Sabbath, um, and those themes. And at the time I was living in Denver in kind of urban Denver, and it was, it was a noisy environment. We had three young kids. Um, so life was anything but silent, but there was this longing in me to sort of raise them in a place that was more quiet that had more kind of access to natural quiet and also rhythms of sort of Sabbath built into life. Um, and which a lot of the, the nations in here in Europe have is sort of, you know, everything shut down on Sundays and longer holiday times and longer meal times and just sort of a little more in tune with natural rhythms, I find. And so that was a big part of us moving to France as well was just getting to tap into some of those rhythms. So geographically, I'm, I'm all over, but those are a few influences. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of this, this mix now being an uh, American here in Europe. Um, but yeah. That there's a there's a taste of it. <laughs> well, and and I'm 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 really interested in how how that kind of slower, more natural rhythm. I mean, you you said you made one film about silence, but I just can't mm-hmm. even as the, in the work you're doing now. How has that slower rhythm informed the way that you you think about your work? You think about your art. You think about filmmaking. Um, has that has that come into play as you as you think about some of the some of the things that you're trying to create certainly i don't know if i could make it you know obvious links about how but i think you know silence and rhythms of it you know little tastes of silence or longer periods are certainly where i feel like a lot of the ideas the inspiration comes you know or or it's it's the healthiest way i deal with stress you know is to sort of to go take a walk out in the garden uh you know th- I, as i was thinking about that geography question too i thought well maybe geography only really counts now that I'm I'm an amateur gardener, I'm a, a passionate amateur, but still very amateur. But it wasn't until I lived in Denver, maybe the past 10 years where I started gardening, I thought maybe my geography only counts when I put my hands in the soil, you know, <laughs> that it was like only the places where I was actually engaging with the physical land that I was living on, that it should really count. I know that's an oversimplification, but really um, here, that's a big part of um I think certainly my inspiration and my just way of relating to the world is out in my garden. Now we've got chickens too. And that's a, a real contemplative space for me that yeah. brings a lot of joy and, and certainly influences, you know, the work with taste and see this, this film project, you know, we'll talk about, but it um, so much relates to before we get to the kitchen, right. We're at, we're out in the land um, yeah. in, in a small and a big sense for a lot of us. Yeah. Um, I I have to ask, just because France is one of those countries that's known for food, do you notice cultural differences in in people's approaches to thinking about food and and thinking about eating? You mentioned that that mealtimes are longer. Um, Mm. Have you have you have you got a chance to see a lot of that that cultural um, emphasis on food that might be? a little bit in contrast to the way that we sometimes in the States just kind of see food as fuel. Mm, Certainly. And that I'd say, you know, France is not immune to that, but there's certainly significant differences. I think in, you know, the American perception of France and food is often sort of a glamorized, um, you know, everything's very fancy and everything's gourmet and there there's, you know, fast food here and and not as much of it. Um, It's harder to get to particularly where we are in the countryside. But I would say that, 
most of the French that we know seem to have just a, a more normal or maybe healthier relationship to food. They don't think about it as much. Um, they have incredible cheeses and wines and, you know, all, uh, all kinds of produce available at markets all the time. And um, I wouldn't say they take it for granted, but they don't obsess over it either. Like I feel mm -hmm. like in the States, you sometimes with that kind of foodie movement comes an obsessive sort of um, relationship to food that you just don't see here. Um, I think the baseline for what is kind of a regular meal is just a little bit higher. So, you know, maybe less processed. Um, people have a little more of a basic skill set with cooking, you know, basic things uh, in the kitchen kitchen that in the U.S. we might, you know, get a recipe for or never learn somewhere or feel proud of ourselves here. It's just sort of the baseline. So it, it feels a little more, um, I'm struggling for the word, but um, accessible and um, uncomplicated. Mm. Um, I'd say the complicated part for me as an American here is, is the rhythms of eating, particularly the French will eat so late, like an, an evening meal is a big deal. So there's a lot mm. less casual eating. So, you know, you'll, you'll rarely get a, hey, pop by for a coffee sort of thing or, you know, a spontaneous meal invite. It's a little more thoughtful. And then, you know, you show up at 8 p.m., meal might be at 9 p.m. and you won't leave before midnight. Uh, and that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> As I get old with young kids. It's thinking this is just a, a longer drawn out process when it's a meal, but there's something wonderful in that, right? Relationally, no one's hurrying. You know, I'm, I'm struck when I visit the States that it's people will often schedule something before and after a meal encounter. So it's like they've yeah. scheduled you in for a 12 to one o'clock lunch. And at one o'clock, they've got a meeting, you know, yeah. that's just a strange thing here. It would tend to be open-ended and might be several mm. hours. Um, so again, that's a challenge for me. There's still a plenty of those kind of American cultural rhythms, but there's something wonderful when I can relax into it and you're no longer conscious of time. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm struck by the idea of thinking about food less and actually that being a good thing, especially when, as you mentioned, sort of the baseline quality is already high mm. and you just, you don't have to obsess. Like mm. I think part of, part of what the obsession is in the States is we're constantly bombarded with information about what our diets should be. And, and if you don't have that and you just kind of have good food around you and, and accessible, then, then a lot of that messaging is, is going to be gone. That does seem like a, a healthier way to live. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, I mean, I can't speak for all of France, but where we are in the countryside and near the French Alps, it's a, uh, there's so many farmers. So there's so much access to, to, you know, that we literally cross street, there's a farm, you know, shop where you can get the, you know, meat products or, you know, produce and eggs and things. And it's just, so there's a much easier access to local um, if you want it. I think a growing awareness of that, again, that, that will vary in pockets of France and by, you know, socioeconomic status and things like that. But it is, um, yeah, it feels less complicated and a little more normal to know the local cheeses, you know, and to know the preferred farmer and, you know, places you can, what day you go wear out for a market and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really great. Yeah. It's a gift. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration for Taste and See. I always, I'm always interested in, in where, what's the genesis of a project and, and what inspired it. And, and so, yeah, where did, where, did, where did the idea for Taste and See come from? Yeah, it was a book and it was a book um, 
that maybe many of your listeners would be familiar with, which is Robert Farrar Capon's The mm. Supper of the Lamb. Yeah. Um, which I kind of discovered, I feel like, late late in the game, but uh, <laughs> it was given to me as a gift one Christmas. And I just, I, I, I was um, enamored from the first chapter. And it was, it's so, it's so hard to describe in a way I find if people haven't read it. It's like, is it, it it's cookbook kind of, but it, it's, it's theology kind of it's it's really funny you know it's it's bizarre right it's like there's poetry in it there's it's it's just a strange book but uh, so it almost has no category but i think what it was for me in terms of the inspiration for taste and see was this incredible um realization that this deep love of food the material and this deep love of God, you know, the spiritual, if we're going to have that horrible dichotomy, uh, <laughs> you know, that these loves coexist and you don't, one is not at the expense of another. And I think Capen did that like I'd never experienced mm-hmm. anyone before in his writing where he passionately loves both and never one was a vehicle to another. I think especially, so I grew mm-hmm. up in kind of white evangelical America and in that subculture, I found that food, if, if food had anything to do with our faith, it really was often kind of, say, sermon illustrations, yeah. but in a way that didn't really have any actual love for the food. So it was like, I think about, you know, a, a, someone preaching a sermon on, let's say, you know, the vineyard, the parable of the vineyards or things relating to the vines and so on, but maybe being a teetotaler. <laughs> You know, and not seeing any kind of irony in that and saying and and imagining Capen, you know, saying something like, well, you how can you talk about this unless you love wine, unless you appreciate or you talk to farmers or vintners, you know, who are engaging with this? Can we really talk about the full meaning in scripture of these things without loving the stuff of this world, to use Capen's word? Like there's a, a love for material things because God delights in them because he created them. Right. Um, that I think is contagious. And so that, that really was the spark for me is, is seeing the connection of those two. And then I, I sort of, as a, as a filmmaker, I experienced the world often by kind of getting this spark of something and saying, I want to go deeper into that. You know, these documentary journeys are multi-year projects where if it goes well and you find the funding, you get to travel and interview the world experts and sit with it and read about it. And I just love kind of diving into something that I have a passionate interest in. And so that was the, the, result for me of reading Supper of the Lamb was saying, okay, how can I dive into this? I first thought I want to put Capen as the centerpiece of a cooking show. This would be fantastic. And he had, he had passed away just a couple <laughs> years earlier. And so then I kind of thought, okay, plan B, <laughs> uh, what can we do? And there were, then I discovered, you know, and I think that's around the time I discovered your podcast too, but discovered so many other books and resources around this kind of food and faith movement that gave a lot of different angles on these themes that kept coming up in the research. Um, and, and it's like they were, they were so diverse and yet consistent, right? So sort mm-hmm. of the themes of life and death, um, this love of the material, um, not at the expense of the spiritual, but as a window to, you know, the things of God. And so I, I'm, that was a, a real gift in kind of discovering the broader story, the bigger story. And from there it became, okay, how do we, how do we tell multiple stories in a really, um, human-centered way 
uh, as opposed to just gathering really smart people who wrote books and having talking heads tell us all the facts we should know about food. How do we bring it alive, you know, through um, real stories? And that's that's the style of filmmaking I'm really drawn to is this kind of verite style where it's not scripted. You know, we're kind of a fly on a wall to what's unfolding um, and hoping that something real and beautiful emerges, which it often does, that will then bring alive the things that we sensed were there when we, you know, met the person or subject or set up a shoot. Um, and so, yeah, that's a bit about kind of the genesis of the project, how we got here. I feel like Supper of the Lamb is one of those books that's like on an essential reading list for food and faith conversations. <laughs> um it's it's one of those and you're you're right in that it's it's hard to nail down and that it's a little bit of theology it's a little bit of philosophy it's a little bit of poetry it's a little bit of a storytelling it's a little bit of cookbook and it's and it's just just kind of beautifully evocative it's 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 sensual like it's a yeah. sensual book about faith um and and eating kind of gets us to that sensual element of our faith and i i i really love how i mean as, as someone who also has some background in film i also can see the straight line from reading that book to like okay i want i want this in a visual <laughs> i want this in a visual form yeah because there's so much about it that that lends itself to to strong visuals Okay. And, and I, so I've had I've had the opportunity um, and just kind of thinking about what you're 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 saying in terms of your your film style and your filmmaking. And I've had the opportunity to watch the first episode of Taste and See. And um, and it's absolutely stunning. It's absolutely stunning. uh, uh piece of filmmaking. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about the story uh, and that, that you found in that first episode? Because I think it's a, I think it's a really compelling one. We um, yeah. And we were. So one of the things I or one of the books I read in the research phase was Fred Bonson's Soil and Sacrament. I know it'll be familiar to you and much of your network, too, because I know Fred's a, a friend to you all. And he's um, that book is beautiful. And that, another book people should read on the, the essential readers of the food and faith uh, movement. But his last chapter takes place at a Jewish farming community in Connecticut called Adama. And that was where I first got a glimpse through Fred's writing of just the beauty that was happening at this really unique um, place. And so after some conversations with the, the group that runs Adama, we just thought they, they basically have cohorts of, I don't know, 15 or so, usually young people, 20s, 30s, at some transitional point in life, wanting to reconnect with their Jewish heritage, who go and live together in community very intensely uh, for several months at a time and work the land together, uh, cook together, uh, pray together. There's there's really intentional rhythms. Um, and um, it, it sounded beautiful in Fred's writing. And when we got to go and visit, it was it was it was an embodiment of that writing. I mean, Fred was was very true to the reality we experienced too, um, and we essentially tried to find a um, a participant in that program who could anchor our our story um, in this kind of Jewish context, connecting to the land, community. Uh, rhythms of life and death, and um, who we settled on is this young lady named Shomriel, who's this amazing woman um, who actually grew up in a Christian context, 
um, but her uh, mother was Jewish and she really wanted to reconnect with her mother's heritage. Her mother passed away and we unpack more of that in the film. Um, but so we really follow her engagement in this community. She had really significant memories of family dinners um, growing up that we get into. And that was a real anchor point for her, um, really connecting with the rhythms of Sabbath, of the Jewish Shabbat and how kind of the, the resting resting from our work in the land, resting from our rhythms of work. Um, and um, it kind of lots of themes of this kind of whole, all of our research, food and faith, you know, related research came together in the story of Shomriel engaging at Adama and beyond. And so this, this first kind of film in the series tells that story and it raises a lot of the themes that we hope we'll cover in other, other films in the series to come. There's a, there's a handful of things that are, really profound in watching this film one there's this uh there's this kind of beautiful dialogue between judaism and christianity going on mm. of, of shomriel dealing with sort of the christianity that she grew up with and also dealing with uh being in this uh jewish environment and and having sort of these this internal on ongoing dialogue about where is god what is faith how does faith connect to real life and then there is this this real life element of it of of seeing of seeing farming of seeing meals of seeing compost mm -hmm. um the the folks who listen to the show know we we are big fans of compost here uh, but but <laughs> uh being able to see like food at every at every level and, and really being able to to connect that to and, and i often think that sometimes our, our jewish brothers and sisters are better at this than than christians sometimes are of, of really making those connections to food and what's in the scripture and what's in what their what their theology teaches it's this beautiful um exploration uh, of questions of, mm. of 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 faith and and uh it, it's it's nuanced it's not giving any real answers it's 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 asking us to sit with questions and it's all centered around food and i i just i absolutely love how you've used food and farming to to raise these questions to a level where you have to sit with them you have mm -hmm. to you have to ponder them and, it, and it's 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 just uh wonderfully done mm. Thank you very much. But it was, it was, you know, there's a, in this season of my life, I've been drawn a lot to kind of that visual of sort of an open-handed posture mm. to life, um, feeling like that's core to my, my spiritual journey, but also in this, this approach to how we want to tell these, these stories in Taste and See is to be very open-handed and to come as listeners and as learners. Um, you know, Judaism was not deeply familiar to me, and they were really graciously welcoming us. Shomriel, as a as someone from, from a Christian background, was more unique in the Adama mm. context, um, but she really wanted to reconnect with her Jewish heritage and was welcomed with with open arms, even though she kind of didn't fit the obvious box. And so she had a really a really rich experience. But yeah, just sort of this this open handed approach to our storytelling. I think I think that's where real transformation happens. You know, I don't I don't think <laughs> prescriptive sort of um, approaches to 
transformation or, you know, a change go, it mm-hmm. doesn't work, right? It's not how we change, yeah. but I think we can be changed when we, particularly in, in documentary, when something real is happening before us and we believe it and we open ourselves up to the story being told, we, then we inevitably start to imagine ourselves in that story in some place or find points of identification. That's where transformation happens. You know, I think mm-hmm. this whole, the, 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 one of the importances of the food and faith movement is that it it does need to change how we relate to the land, to one another, and I believe to God. You know, I know that mm. those are themes that you would affirm, you know, with all the work Absolutely. that you guys are doing in this Absolutely. podcast. Um, but I it 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 has to be real, I guess is my point for, for mm. that to happen. It has to be, and that's where I think this style of storytelling, I hope people can experience it and know that it is real. What they're seeing really does happen. You know, one of our one of our litmus tests for success in this project is um, going back to the people we film with saying, okay, have we, have we represented you well? Have you, mm. have we honored your story in this? That's terrifying. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm not saying we're going to give you veto power. So I have to be careful what I'm saying, but I, I am going back and saying, I, as a filmmaker will feel like we were successful in this case, if Shomriel watches this and says, yeah, you, that is me. You know, and that is my story. And that's it's it's delicate. I mean, you can imagine anyone who knows kind of the history of Judaism and Christianity can know even that is a really sensitive subject that Absolutely. there's room for offense all around. Say, how do we honor Shomriel's story, Adama's story in this? and be really true to what we experienced. And so, yeah, uh, all that to say, if, if we do that, then I think people can receive more. And I think, I hope it will lead to people's hearts being open to engaging the table and everything tied to the table in a, in a new and fresh way. Yeah. And I think you, I think you walk that tightrope very, very delicately and very carefully um, to be able to honor the experiences of the folks who are are presented in the film. So what's what's the um what's the dream for Taste and See? How many how many episodes are you or or uh I'm using the word episodes cuz that's kind of where my brain is. Um yes. but how many episodes and like what other what other kinds of stories do you want to tell? Mm. Yeah, and we we start we've we've been calling it a documentary film series. They're about an hour or so in length, the different films. But feeling like that, we've been advised to say, you know, talking about kind of episodes and TV series kind of cheapens it. Some people just say it's just sort of a sense of like, oh yeah, I'll just almost that binging language comes in. Oh, let me just binge a bunch of episodes as opposed to yeah. engaging a film. So whether that's true or not remains to be seen. But yeah, there's a series of stories, films or episodes um, that we we have started filming and others that we really want to. So the dream right now is there's eight different films um, that we've worked out, stories that I'm really excited about, half of which we've begun uh, some filming on. Um, some of them are with people that will be familiar to listeners. Um, we spend a lot of time with Kendall Vanderslice and then Peter Reinhardt, um, who's kind of a master baker and teacher and, and their interaction around you know bread. Um, so there's a, a really cool story that's that's well along um, featuring them. Uh, there's a story around wine, the spirituality of wine with Gisela Kreglinger, who leads wine pilgrimages through parts of uh, France and Germany. So it's kind of part uh, wine tasting, part contemplative prayer retreat. And she just has that she's a, a, a grew up on a, a winery in Germany and so is a vintner's daughter and has this really beautiful understanding of wine as this extravagant gift from God. Um, <laughs> And a mystery that we can't explain, you know, um, that we can't we can't recreate a fantastic wine in a lab. 
You know, there's a mystery obviously tied to land and terroir of that, that creates this otherworldly experience for a, a well-crafted wine. And so there's so much around wine. That's just a really exciting story. Fasting and feasting, you know, um, kind of both of those themes being hand in hand. There's a, a, an Eastern Orthodox monastery off the coast of Athens um, that has a really a beautiful relationship to fasting uh, and feasting that we're excited to tell. We, we certainly spend time um, in the land a lot and on farms. There's a story with Joel Salatin and Norman Wurzba interacting, um, which some people will be familiar with, around death and life on the farm. Soul food, you know, cooking in the kitchen and kind of the creativity, divine creativity um, that happens in recipe creation and, and not just with professional chefs, but just sort of that joy of discovering flavors and tastes. Uh, and there's, uh, there's loads of other themes and stories um, that we want to pursue. You know, we're at an interesting place in that we, we started filming pre-pandemic <laughs> and there's, that's a whole other series of fun <laughs> tidbits, but we literally captured the final shoot, uh, the final bit of footage we needed to tell this first or to complete this first film. And then we edited during the pandemic. So it was this, uh, I believe, literal godsend to be able to, to move the project forward at a time when we were in very serious lockdown over here, um, but completing a film. And, um, and then now we're in this odd space of having this film and the way, you know, these projects go, a lot of times you, you find a big distributor, you know, a, a Netflix or a whoever who loves the project and buys the thing and funds it all and it becomes theirs. Um, and that was something we've been open to. Uh, and people say, oh, this, this should fit on Netflix. You know, this is the obvious place. And as we've gotten close to some of those conversations with people in the distribution world, we've gotten a lot of, I wouldn't say pushback, but but essentially people saying, well, look, you're dealing with spiritual content. <laughs> and so... The, the only way this can really work on these mainstream platforms is you've got to do a little more of a, you know, equal airtime, uh, one chapter on every faith tradition mm. Um, mm. and make sure it's really accessible to everyone. And that's, it's just a, a, a kind of a prescriptive approach that we're not, not really comfortable with, you know, we're trying to kind of follow the stories that come to us and not try and kind of tick the boxes of, did we get the episode on this faith and that faith and that yeah. faith? Now we certainly want a diversity of stories and we want all of the stories to be accessible to people from a lot of backgrounds. And I believe they are. I mean, you've seen the this yeah. first one and we've had people from all kinds of faith traditions watch it and really resonate with it. Um, and that's my goal with every story. So whatever tradition it's anchored in, I don't want it to be, um, oh, good. Well, okay, that one's for the Jews and <laughs> that one's for, you know, the Christians and that one's for whoever. Um, but so we've been kind of stuck a little bit in where do we go with this project if the mainstream, the general input we've gotten is it's not, it's kind of too spiritual, you know, like can mm. we water it down a little bit? We, you know, they're <laughs> comfortable with, let's say, uh, motivation or inspiration or... <laughs> you know, believe in yourself, but you get into like the specifics of a faith tradition and it's not totally comfortable territory mm. on the flip side though. And there's a, you know, there's a booming, there's a booming Christian film industry that makes a lot of money. And, and certainly that's my background, but um, that space has said, it's not spiritual enough for us. Mm. We want mm -hmm. you to go all, we want you to, to make it real explicit, you know, and um, kind of, 
put more Bible verses in there and have an altar call at the end. You know? And, and just, that's, that's not what we're making either, you know? And so we've, we found ourselves caught in this, some have called it the dead zone. Others have called it the middle space of saying kind of where does thoughtful, open-handed spiritual content live mm. um, when it is for a diverse audience, certainly for people of faith from, from diverse backgrounds. I also really hope it's for people who love food you know, you talk to many foodies who may or may not identify with a faith tradition. And I think most of them, in my experience, will resonate with the idea that there's something profound happening in our relationship to food. They may not have faith language around it, but depending on what language you use, they're really open to that idea and interested yeah. in it. In fact, it, it gives language to what they've in, intuitively known about part of why they love cooking and ingredients and and sharing the table and so but I, so we're trying to make it for this diverse audience which has meant distribution is hard so all that to say we're at a we're at a pretty unique place i know we'll get to share about this virtual screening uh series that we're doing coming up but it's that's uh we're kind of forging our own path at least right now to say can we can we find the in essence the funding we need to to keep going on this series. We've kind of exhausted what we've got with finishing this first film and starting on some others, but um, it's it's a strange thing. I know there's an audience there, right? The existence of your podcast <laughs> is evidence of this. <laughs> there is a movement of people that care about this and don't, want, don't just want the kind of whitewashed mainstream stuff um, that we make sure doesn't ever offend anyone or go too specific on something spiritual, nor who want the kind of prescriptive, frankly, bad art that's churned out by a lot of the religious groups that are making yeah. quote unquote film. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's a, some of our yeah. challenges. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I so appreciate that because it is, it is the challenge of audience that, you know, that we've experienced with the podcast of, of there is a, there's a desire to tell broad spiritual stories and have broad spiritual conversations. There's also a, a desire to engage the food world on a, on a, in a broad way. And wanting to do both of those things with integrity mm, wanting right. to do both of those things in a way that honors my own theological understandings but also is inclusive and welcoming to a broad a broad range of perspectives and, and it, it's it's tough because w without being uh too inflammatory <laughs> there 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 is a uh there is a christian media complex that mm is is frankly theologically shallow um and i think that's being very polite on my part um and, and often artistically shallow too and, and, and often <laughs> of, of of questionable artistic quality i mean like i mean let's let's be let's be real let's be really real here you know it's not where it's not where something like this should live and so so the question you know and i i think again we're we're, we're wrestling with very similar kind of questions is uh you know sometimes you have to you have to create that your own space and you have to create your own means of reaching your audience and that's a little bit of what you're doing uh, with some of these screenings that are coming up so can you tell us a little bit about um the virtual screenings and and how you're how you're wanting to get this first episode out into the world 
So we are releasing this first film um, along with a panel discussion with myself and Norman Wurzba, who's someone we feature in a later film, and uh, Andrew Peterson, who's a musician who has who started a, a community of artists that's been really excited about our film too, big fans of Capen. So they've been partnering to helping get the word out. So there's a, a panel in the film we kind of have as an event that people can stream online. And it's really, we're, we're calling it a virtual cinema event. The idea is it should feel like going to the movies in a way or going to an event. You go and choose a showtime, you get your ticket and you've got 24 hours from that time to watch it um, at home. And yeah, hopefully it feels like a little more than just sort of the normal movie night, you know, grab something on whatever streaming platform. Um, it's interesting. We, we've developed a, there's an event guide that we've made in partnership with this, this group called the rabbit room um, who really has a big value on community as well that uh, has a recipe in it and some discussion questions. We're really hoping that people will do that, you know, gather, watch the film, um, but then discuss it and share a meal together, you know, maybe even cook something This recipes inspired by the film. And so we're doing what we can to make this a, a kind of a screening event that has more than just kind of a head level engagement, but there's a heart and kind of a whole body engagement in the process. So we're going to run this screening for, uh, it's a couple of weeks starting at the end of this week depending on when this runs. So from June 3 for a couple yeah. of weeks after that, it'll um, be available. And we're hopeful that this will yield the the return we need to keep producing the, the series. If not, we've, we'll have to go back to the drawing board, but it really is us saying, okay, I know there's an audience for this kind of stuff out there. Does this audience want this to be made and produced? If so, come get a ticket and you know chip in what you can to, to let us keep going because we're really excited to tell these these stories and we want to build a community as we do it, you know, for this sort of media, this sort of content. I know you guys, again, are one of the people forging that kind of path yeah. um, with the different projects you're involved in too. Um, but yeah, so it'll be a limited time for a couple of weeks. We'll run this and then um, we'll kind of reevaluate after that. Okay. Was it successful? Can we tell more stories? Can we produce more films? Um, yeah. So we will see. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah, and we we definitely want to encourage our audience to take advantage of these screenings over the next couple of weeks. Um, we will have links in the show notes and all those sorts of things so that people know where to connect. And uh, I love the idea of of this being not just kind of a uh, you know sit down with your laptop and and watch watch a film, but sort of like making a movie night of it where you make a recipe and you have some discussion mm -hmm. and maybe like gather some folks around who might be like-minded and and really kind of make a night of it I, I i really uh i really love that idea i think that's that's a that's a fun way to engage this and and hopefully hopefully people will uh watch and share and we'll we'll make sure um that there's as many uh outlets through our channels as we can to make sure that happens so uh I, i've got got to ask you this question because um you know, Anna and I are working on this book about cooking mm. and I haven't, I, I have yet to ask you about, about cooking. Like, do you, do you, <laughs> do you cook or is that something that you do? Is that something that you enjoy doing? And um, what's, what's kind of been your history in the kitchen? Mm, I love it. Yeah. I, I would say I'm, I tend to do most of the cooking at home. My wife so can cook well and bakes masterfully. Um, but I love to cook and it's, you know, often much of my work is often sitting, uh, 
on a screen all day. So it's one of those tactile engagements with the world I can do slicing an onion or what have you just like gardening. Um, but yeah, I love I love to cook. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a uh, I don't know how to describe my kind of cooking, but it is, I guess maybe like most people I'd imagine you end up getting into cooking because you like to eat, right? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. That, that's the gateway is <laughs> I love to eat and I want to figure out how to recreate that thing was that was delicious because I want to eat that again and again. Um, yeah. And I think gardening has been, at least it, that was the gateway to gardening for me too, is going, well, yeah. why don't I grow my own tomato? You know, <laughs> let's try that. Wow, it's so much more delicious. It's so <laughs> much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I do love it. Yeah. I just, I just thought, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't actually asked you that question about uh, whether or not you, you are in the kitchen yourself. I am. Um, I am. And I, it is a joy. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like all the, you know, the table sort of being the pinnacle of the food and faith experience, but it's like all the whole journey there is, is really fun. I mean, I don't know yeah. how else to describe it, but that, you know, I, I find gardening being this delightful experience. And then that process of in the kitchen, you know, the preparation and the choosing, I, I even love shopping, you know, grocery shopping to me. I, <laughs> I love it. You know, my wife can't stand it. No one can figure out why is, why am I gone for two hours? You know, why did it take that long? But it's like, what new things are there, you know, or how many different stores can I go to, to that have this or that, or what little market. And I just kind of all of the ways of engaging with food for me are, um, are delightful on the way to the table. And then when you sit down and you have that meal, right, mm -hmm. with whomever around the table, friends, loved one, new friends, um, it's uh, it's such a richer experience knowing what it's take taken to get to that moment, the whole journey, you know, that we're often so disconnected from, right? Even I am yeah. plenty that, you know, kind of mindless eating is so easy yeah. when you engage with something or you have an appreciation for, you know, wow, store-bought hummus versus hummus that I made myself, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I know everything in there and I know what that took and I know ah, a little more lemon next time, you know, <laughs> but just to know those kind of things, um, I don't know, it's, uh, there's an appreciation that happens when you do eat that uh, you can't quite have, I think, if you aren't engaging with food. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I totally agree with that. I want to wrap up where we always do. Um, and asking you what gives you hope and not so much the hope that is oblivious to the challenges in the world around us but hope that kind of gives you the energy and courage to keep doing the kind of work that you're doing in mm. in in spite of the challenges you know i obsess so much about the geography question i wasn't ready for this one I should have been, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a part of the a part of the format too um you know honestly I think what what is giving me hope, what constantly is, <laughs> is the fact that through this whole project, everything around taste and see and our engagement with food to me ultimately points to the beautiful, uh, incredible reality of life coming from death. Mm. Um, and that being core to who God is, right? It's woven through all of creation, every single bit of our engagement with food. And that gives me hope because I'm constantly butting my head against the failure and the frustration and the things not being as I wish they had been um, and the struggles and, uh, and literal death, you know, I mean, literal tragedy, right? There's plenty of examples from recent news headlines of just, there is so much room for discouragement and despair. And I love that you end with this question. I think I'd say, look no further than, you know, who we see God to be in our relationship to food and all of creation, which is constantly bringing life from death, right? Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, 
<laughs> you know, new life cannot come forth. And that's, that gives me hope. <laughs> it's kind of the, uh, this desperate clinging to sort of hope because there's a lot of reason to despair. But the fact that, you know, composting or uh, whatever it may be, bread baking, um, that it's always through that process of dying that that new life um, comes forward. And you've got to go through the dying. I, we all want to find a way to go around it, right? Um, but the fact that it is at our rock bottom moments that then we tend to see God's hand stepping in and saying, okay, and now let me breathe on this thing that you thought was dead. So that's, that, that gives me hope. Mm. Yeah. There's a, there's a theme emerging of uh, filmmakers coming on the show and talking about the importance of death. Mm. Um, we, we had uh, a couple who were working on, on a documentary called death in the garden. Yes. Uh, I just was hearing that. Yeah. I just heard that. And so I, I'm, I'm, but I, I, but I appreciate, I, you know, I think there is, you know, particularly in the last couple of weeks, there has been uh, so much, despairing news um, around us uh, here in the States. And I'm, I'm sure that that reverberates uh, around the world more than more than we realize. Um, but understanding, like being theologically grounded in the idea that life comes from death and, and these things that oftentimes feel like failure and frustration and, and sad endings, um, those are the places where where new life emerges and and sometimes we just have to be diligent and in and sometimes we have to get our hands dirty right to mm -hmm. to to be a part of stewarding that that new life coming from death so i, I I'm, I'm actually uh incredibly grateful for that reminder this morning um mm. i just i feel like i i needed to hear that so, uh, Andrew, can you tell people ways that they can, uh, obviously we're going to, we're going to put the links for the screenings, uh, in the show notes and things like that. But, um, if you just tell people the ways that they can connect with you, connect with your work, uh, want to be able to make sure that people have all of the ways, uh, to, to be able to experience taste and see and, uh, and, and hopefully, uh, be able to promote it in a way that, that there's, there's multiple films, yeah. uh, in this series. So how can yeah. people connect with you? I think I would just point them to taste and see films.com. So that's films plural. So taste and see films.com. And there's links there to the virtual screenings. There's info about the project get on a we've got a very occasional kind of emailing that we'll do we're on facebook and instagram too but all the links through there um are really the place to to focus so yeah we would we would welcome people joining these screenings and spreading the word through their community and and let's let's prove the fact that i think is true but that there is enough of an <laughs> for this kind of stuff uh by people coming in and getting tickets for these screenings we'd be grateful yeah, absolutely. And uh, I appreciate, um, as someone who did something similar, I appreciate that the URL is Taste and See Films, plural. Mm. Um, that's kind of an act of faith there. And we want to, we want to stand, <laughs> we want to stand, we want right. to stand, we want to stand and support that, that there's going to be, there's going to be multiple films. Uh, so uh, I, I'm 100% in support of that. That's right. Um, you just made me more terrified about our URL. No, 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 no. That was, that was, that was supposed to no, be that's encouragement. Good. That's good. I'm going to stand. There's faith there. Okay. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for your time and, and for all the great work that you're doing. And, and again, I, I, I do just want to say, you know, having seen the first film, um, it's, it's a beautiful film. It's beautifully done. Um, it's a great story. And uh, I, I just, I, 
I am really excited for people to see this. It's a great piece of work. Great. I'm excited too. Thank you, Derek. It's uh, it's meant a lot. Really appreciated the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.